0: it's one of the most precious rites that Christ gave to his church. And so because of that, we set aside one service every quarter to devote to this special event. And so you're going to notice that today's service uh, will play out differently than a typical worship service. So normally, the first half of our time together would be spent Singing, hearing a scripture reading, having a pastoral prayer, and then the second half of the service would be the sermon. But today, it's going to unfold differently. Today, my sermon is being broken up into three separate parts, and I will preach those parts at different points of the service. We've also broken up our singing so that we will sing in response to God's word at different points during the service. And then the climax of our time together will be the partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we are still using uh, these little communion packets. So if you're going to partake with us today, I trust that you picked one of these up. When the appropriate time comes in the service, we will peel back the first layer of the packet together. We'll access the bread. I'll say a few words. I'll offer a prayer. You'll hear the instruments play for a few moments. And then together, as a family of believers, we will take the bread. And then we'll follow the same procedure with the cup. If you've never been here before for a communion service, just follow my lead, and everything will go smoothly. But we are so grateful that you can be here today. And because this is such a solemn occasion, we always like to begin the service with some time for private meditation and prayer. So let me ask the instrumentalist to play while we do that. So our text for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and it's verses 23 through 31. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 958. This is a well-known communion text. And as we examine this text together, I want you to notice how the Lord's Supper calls us To direct our gaze in three directions. And first, it calls us to look back. To look back to the cross. Look at verses 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Okay, so a lot of important information in these opening verses. We see here that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ himself, instituted on the night that he was betrayed, that is, the night before his crucifixion. And we see that the first element he distributed at the supper was bread. And he explains the meaning or the the significance of that bread. He says, this bread is or represents my body. Now, you understand that Christ is the eternal Son of God, that He has always existed and He always will exist. But our Lord did not always have a human body. He received His body through the miracle of, of the Incarnation. In that moment, the Eternal Son of God took upon Himself human flesh so that now in this one person there were two natures, divine and human. And the divine human person was implanted in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The bread that we will partake of together, it represents that body. Our Lord also explains here the purpose of him taking on a body. He says the body was for you or for your sakes. And here he means that this body which he took on was, was, was taken on that he might be a substitutionary sacrifice of atonement for us. In other words, our Lord accepted a human body that he might offer that body to God as a substitute for you and i romans 3:23 declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god romans 6:23 says that the wages of sin is death that includes physical death but also spiritual death the separation of the person from god and eternal death separated from him in a place called hell At the cross, Christ took that full penalty upon Himself. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 say, Surely He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And and I trust you can hear both the taking on of our spiritual anguish as well as those physical sufferings. He bore our sorrows, our grief. That means all of the guilt that we bore due to our sins, all of the spiritual consequences of that, he took that upon himself. And then the death of the body he took on as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. So when we partake of that bread, we are reminded of the body of Christ and how it was given for our sakes. But then we look down at verse 25, we see there's another element in the supper. It says, in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper. That is a a cup of wine saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, first he handed out bread that represented his body. Then he passed around a cup of wine, which represented the new covenant in his blood. See, before the coming of Christ, God's people were under a covenant. But this covenant included a very gruesome ritual. Under that old covenant, God's people, at regular intervals, would have to bring a lamb to the place of worship first the tabernacle, then the temple they would bind the feet of that lamb, place it upon an altar. They would put their hands on that lamb, signifying the transfer of sin from them to that substitute. And then they would slit that lamb's throat, allowing it to bleed out before their eyes. It was a gruesome ritual, but it was necessary because God's people needed to understand a lesson They needed to understand that all have sinned, that the wages of sin is death, and that if we are not going to bear the wage of sin ourselves, then it must fall upon a substitute. And so time and time again, under that old covenant, God's people would offer these animal sacrifices, remembering these spiritual lessons, but then it was also a foreshadowing of Christ, of the once and for all sacrifice that He would make. Here in the Lord's Supper, we remember how the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord inaugurated a new covenant. Christ's sacrifice would be once and for all, unlike those animal sacrifices that came before. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And Hebrews 10.12 says, Christ offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sin. You see, our Lord's self-sacrifice on the cross would be the act of atonement which would do away with all of those animal sacrifices. They would find their terminus in Christ and His work. You see, unlike those animal sacrifices which had no real value. Christ's sacrifice was of infinite value because He was the God-man, fully divine and fully human, both natures in the one person. His sacrifice was of infinite worth. And while those animal sacrifices were not truly efficacious, Christ was. He took upon Himself all of the sins that we had committed bore them on his shoulders as a man substituting for other men. And then he said, verses 24 and 25, Do this in remembrance of me. So we partake of the bread, representing his body. We partake from the cup, representing his blood, and the new covenant ratified by that blood. And we do this to remember our Lord's dying love for us. So the cross was an event that happened in the past, but it's something that we are called to keep in the forefront of our minds in the present. Why must we do this? Well, first, because it fuels our worship. As we see what our Lord did for us, how can we not want to praise Him and glorify Him for it? And second, it strengthens our commitment to Him. As we see that He was willing to go to the cross for us, we see that surely we should be willing to give our lives for Him and His cause. Being reminded of the cross also gives us endurance in our own trials as we see what Christ endured, and He did it gladly for our sakes. We should be willing to endure for His sake. Then finally, it motivates us to war with indwelling sin. As we look at the cross and we see what our sins cost the Son of God, we should now feel a desire to root out every last vestige of it from our lives. How can we be indifferent to sin seeing what it cost the Son of God? And so we are called to remember our Lord through the partaking of these elements. And friends, let us remember Him together now as a family of believers And let us sing of this together as well. So the Lord's Supper calls us to look back at the cross. But it also calls us to look ahead to the consummation. Let's look at verse 26 together now. This verse reads, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, notice first that the apostle affirms the Lord's Supper is to be a regular observance of the local church. He says, as often as you eat this and drink this. This is to be a a regular part of local church life. And it's an act of worship. To God, Which is why we have this during the worship service. But then you'll notice, secondly, through this perpetual observance, we are called to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's think about that statement for a moment. It's a little curious, isn't it? It says, at the Lord's Supper, we wait... Or we proclaim His death until He comes. Now, if our Lord died, why are we waiting for Him to come? Well, of course, you know the answer to that. It's because Christ's story didn't end at His death. On the third day after His death, He was risen bodily from the grave in power and victory. And friends, the bodily resurrection of Christ is just as essential to the gospel story as his death, for the resurrection shows us that he really is who he said he was, namely the Son of God, one with authority over life and death. It also shows us that his death really did make a full atonement for sin, If His sacrifice had only been a partial atonement, He would still be in the grave today, continuing to pay sin's wage. His rising from the dead signifies that it was fully paid. Through His resurrection, we also see that there is real life to be had, resurrection life after death. Then the Scriptures tell us that after our Lord's resurrection, He ascended to His Father's right hand. And even now, friends, as I speak, the risen Lord is in heaven enjoying a session at His Father's right hand where He is being worshipped day and night by angels and by the saints who have gone before us. But one day, and we don't know when, but surely it is closer today than yesterday, One day He is coming back to earth in power and glory to complete the salvation of His people. Our Lord will come and raise the dead in Christ, giving them new glorified bodies. He will also transform those alive at His coming, that they too might have new glorified bodies. And after enjoying a session with Him in heaven, they will return to earth and participate in His earthly kingdom. My friends, in those days, just before the establishment of Christ's kingdom, there will be another supper. We call this one the marriage supper of the Lamb because it will solemnize the union of Christ with His church. Revelation 19 speaks of this supper. Listen to what the Apostle John says. He says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That is, the church has been made ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you see, friends, our Lord died for us, but then He was also risen from the dead, and He ascended to His Father's right hand, and He will come back for us one day. And there will be another supper with our Lord, the marriage supper Of the Lamb. And friends, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper down here on earth without His physical presence, we are thinking about that coming day when He will be with us again, when He will join us at the table, and we will sup with Him face to face. And then we will reign together over His kingdom, our Lord and us as His bride. My friends, let us sing now about that glorious coming day when we shall be with our Lord again face to face. So the Lord's Supper calls us to look back to the cross. It calls us to look ahead to the consummation But then thirdly, we see that the Lord's Supper calls us to look within, to our own conscience. Let's read verses 27 through 31 now. The Apostle writes, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Here he's speaking to the church in Colossae. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, the Apostle Paul's wording in verse 27 is very important. You see, from the standpoint of merit, we are all unworthy of Christ's sacrifice, which means we are all unworthy to have a seat at His table. We have done nothing to earn the favor of God, nor are we capable of doing so. That's what makes our redemption And our place at this table, an act of God's mercy and grace. But the Apostle Paul is not talking about our merit here. Rather, he's warning about participating in this supper in an unworthy manner. We know that from the standpoint of merit, we're not worthy. But we want to be partakers in a worthy manner. And how would we be unworthy of this supper? How would we partake in an unworthy manner? Well, looking at the broader context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe we find our answer. And first of all, it would mean that we are not treating the supper with proper reverence. You're partaking in an unworthy manner if you're not partaking in reverence. And this was really the problem in the church of Colossae. You see, what was happening in this church is that some people were coming to the supper before others had arrived and then they would gorge themselves on the food and then they would drink down all the communion wine, literally getting drunk on that wine. And then others would come in later. Perhaps they were poorer church members. They had to work farther into the night. And so they would trickle in later on and they would find that all the food was gone, all the drink was gone, and they were left out. They were partaking in a in a flippant manner, almost turning the Lord's Supper into a, a party. What a mockery this church was making of the Lord's Supper. And friends, in our day, churches can be guilty of making a mockery of the supper, too. Now I've found churches that have substituted bread and wine for chips and soda. I once watched a a live stream of a church trying to perform the Lord's Supper in a virtual format. And at the appropriate time of the service, the pastor just looked into the camera and said, Okay, now everybody, real quick, run to your kitchens, find whatever you can. Water, pop, juice, it doesn't matter. Just bring it, and then we're going to partake together. Oh, friends, what a tragic misuse of the Lord's Supper Friends, our Lord did not consecrate potato chips and soda or water or anything else. He consecrated bread and the fruit of the vine. And he tells us to partake of these things, thinking about his dying love for us. That is not something to be done in a flippant way. No, this is a solemn occasion. There's another way to mistreat the Lord's Supper, and that is by not coming to the Supper as an individual of faith. See, even if we partake solemnly on the outside, we can be guilty of partaking unworthily on the inside. The Lord's Supper was given by Christ to His church. The elements are to be taken by those who have truly received Christ in faith and repentance, They enjoy a spiritual union with Christ. His Holy Spirit indwells their hearts. They are glad to live under His Lordship as His disciples. They are proud to consider themselves a part of Christ's church. And so, friends, this is why, verses 27 and 28, we are all called upon to examine ourselves, See, we must examine ourselves because no one can discern the state of your heart the way that you can. This is between you and God. We're called to examine ourselves before we partake. Not to engage in some kind of morbid introspection where we try to dredge up every possible sin from our past, but rather this is a healthy self assessment where we ask questions like this Am I truly trusting in Christ alone? Have I come to Him in faith and repentance? Am I seeking by God's grace to put away the remaining sin in my life and live on in obedience to His Word? Do I count myself fortunate to be a part of His church? Am I proud to identify with my fellow believers? Am I approaching this table with an attitude of worship and reverence? You see, these are the kinds of questions that we are called to ask ourselves Before we partake. And then verses 29 through 31 says we're called to pass judgment on ourselves. We can answer, yes, by God's grace, I am one of his children. I have come to him in faith. I am a part of his church. Or we look at ourselves and make the opposite assessment. No, I've not trusted in Christ. Or I am harboring a sin that is known by me, known by God, and I have refused to repent, and I have tried to keep Christ out of this aspect of my life, and I know that must change. How can I say that I love Christ and His sacrifice for me when I refuse to repent of such a thing? We're called to pass judgment on ourselves, and then, if necessary, to rectify what is wrong, to believe in Christ. John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're called upon to believe in Him and receive the new life that He gives. Or if we're already believers, but there's something that we need to deal with, we're called to do that right away. Even before we reach the elements today, pray to God a silent prayer, confessing, forsaking that sin you have been holding onto so tightly and resolve that you will let it go from this time forward. My friends, because of the solemn nature of the Lord's Supper and what it represents, we are all called upon to examine ourselves, to pass judgment upon ourselves, and then to do what we believe must be done so that we can partake in a worthy manner. The text gives us a very powerful motivation for doing so. It says, if we won't pass judgment on ourselves, God will do it for us in his own time and way. He says to the church of Kor this is why some of you are sick right now and some of you have died a premature death. The Lord is judging you as a father would discipline his children. He is disciplining you for mistreating his son, for treating lightly that sacrifice. So, friends, to summarize here, as we prepare to partake of the supper together, first, we are called to look back at our Lord's dying love for us. We remember what He has done. We cherish His gift. But then we're also called to look ahead, to think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will come on that future day. And as we partake this morning without our Lord's physical presence, we long for that coming supper. But then finally, we look within so that we partake of this supper in a worthy manner. And then finally, friends, through it all, we're also looking upward to the Lord who now sits in heaven. This is our act of worship to him, to follow his ordinance and to practice it as He has instructed. We worship Him who gave His all for us. Let's praise Him now together just before we partake. At this time, let's take out our communion packets. Let's peel back that first layer to access the bread. And looking at 1 Corinthians 11 once more, they tell us that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, He first took the bread, and then He gave thanks. So allow me to give thanks for the bread before us today. Our Lord, we are so grateful to be here together today. Lord, we thank You for calling us to Yourself in salvation and then drawing us together as a family of believers. Lord, we thank You for the spiritual union that we enjoy with Christ because of His work for us. Lord, we know that we have contributed nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So thank You for Your grace. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for taking on human flesh, living amongst us, Thank you for enduring the death of the cross. And as we partake of this bread, Lord, may we remember once more that body given for us. That body which we anticipate seeing one day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. And Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the scriptures tell us that in the same way, our Lord took the cup also, and he again gave thanks. So let us peel back that second layer and access the juice that we have to drink. Allow me to play and the instruments will then, excuse me, allow me to pray. The instruments will play once more and then we'll partake. Our Lord, we thank you so much for your willingness to shed your own life blood that we might have life eternal. Lord, may we never lose our sense of wonder that you are willing to do this for us. We thank you for that infinitely great and efficacious sacrifice. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. And Jesus lifted the cup and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then finally, our Lord said, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. To that, all God's people say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.